a work day here yesterday. Um, we had a bunch of projects and work that we needed to get done around the property. We had to rebuild a retaining wall, or try to at least. Uh, we had to take this huge mound of dirt and build a water gradient or a gradient to keep the water away from the property. Uh, we had cleaning to do, CO2 detectors to put in, locks to replace, all kinds of work. It was wonderful, and I'm so grateful to all of you uh, who came, who helped. People stayed here literally from 11 a.m. to 5 and 6 p.m., and so you have worked hard, broken a sweat for the sake of this church plant. I am grateful to you. May the Lord remind us that all this work is so that God might create a place, an opportunity here, so that many in our city might come to know Jesus. Uh, one of the key guys for us was Matt. Uh, Matt was key in just teaching us what to do and how to do it. If we believed in reincarnation, Matt would have been a mason or an architect or an engineer of a previous life. He was excellent, right? So he told us what teams, what to do, gave us instruction on everything. All right, here's a scenario I want you to imagine or picture. Imagine that Matt couldn't come yesterday, right? And so say he and his wife, Bincy, they live in Jersey. They couldn't make the drive. And so say they were going to give us, they were going to appoint one of you as the lead to handle the teams. And Matt told you, I'm not going to be able to show up, but I'm going to give you emails. They'll have detailed instructions of everything, what teams to create, what jobs to do, how to do each of these jobs. Everything will be fine. And Matt was going to pull in around 5 o'clock at the end of the day just to check on how we did. Say five o'clock rolls around and Matt pulls into our property and he sees that someone has convinced eight people that instead of working, it'd be better to play to and touch football. And so they're playing in the yard. And so he scratches his head, what's going on? But he keeps driving and he keeps driving towards the back and he sees that Nate, rather than using his pickup truck to haul dirt and cement like he had said in his emails, is just doing donuts in the parking lot, right? The kids, rather than our dirt mound being spread out. The kids are running up and down the dirt mound to see who can get to the top the fastest. He finally gets out of his car. He goes to the door. And rather than the locks being replaced, the door is hanging off its hinge. It's sort of broken. He walks in. The place has not been swept or mopped. It's, it's rather dirt on top of dirt, like as though people had mopped in dirt, as though someone would do that. That happened yesterday. Um, <laughs> Right, So he's walking through the rooms, and now he's in one room, and the ladies are sitting there reading magazines, painting their toenails. He goes to another room, and the men are playing Texas Hold'em. The whole thing is a mess. And finally, he walks down one hallway, and he finds you, and he says to you, What happened? Didn't you get the emails? And you say to him, Yeah, we got all your emails. In fact, we've read them, we've printed them out, we've bound them together in a book, We've got people studying them, highlighting them. Some of our people have even broken up into smaller groups and communities to really get into your emails. Some people are gifted now at teaching your emails. In fact, some people have even memorized large chunks of your emails and can recite them by memory. And Matt would say, well, what have you done with them? Done? Nothing. But we've studied them. We know them. That would be absurd, right? That'd be a work day that didn't work. And yet the truth of Christianity in much of America, particularly among churchgoers, particularly many of us, is that we would relate to the scriptures in the exact same way, right? What would it be like to get instruction and to do nothing with it? Or to have letters written to you to read them, to study them, to highlight them and to know them, 
but to not have applied any of them. That would be concerning. That'd be a, a work day that didn't work. And, and what that produces in the realm of faith is a faith that doesn't work. Right? It's, a, it's an anemic sort of faith that does not do what you hear. In the scriptural language, it would be that you are hearers, but you are not doers. That would be concerning. And it's a concern not just for 21st century America and churchgoers in Philadelphia. It's a concern from the first days of Christianity. And so that's why we're in James chapter 1 today. If you have your Bibles, you're on page 1011, the passage that Joel read for us. And in James chapter 1, James is really concerned with showing us a Christianity that works. Hear that again. James is really concerned with showing us a faith that works. A faith that moves from heart and head to hands. That what you believe here and know here should inevitably produce something out here. And he would even go on to say that if it's not affecting what happens out here, you don't believe it here or know it here. Because Christianity works. It makes a difference. It affects everything. And if it doesn't affect everything, it's not in here or up here. And so James is really concerned with saying to us, how does a Christian not just be a hearer, but a doer? And, and particularly... He's concerned with how do the scriptures play a part in all of that? What role does this book play into this whole thing of whether we're going to really be mature and grow in our faith? Okay, if you're a new or just a visitor, let me just get you caught up into speed into what we're doing here. Uh, we believe the Bible to be the Word of God. We believe it to be God's revelation to us, that God has revealed in the Scriptures to us who He is and what He's like and what He's done, that apart from His revelation, we would be in the dark as to who God is, what He's done, what He's like, what He requires. But God's given us the Word. And so since He's given us the Word, we believe it, and so every week we open it, we read it, we preach it, we believe it, and as we're talking about today, we seek to even obey it and have it shape our whole lives. In this season, we're preaching through the Bible by preaching on this series called Be the Church. And so what we've been talking about over these weeks is, what does it mean to be the church? What is the church? And so for a few weeks said we said it's not a building, it's not an event, it's not a service, it's not a place, it's a people. You are the church. And last week, we sort of took a turn and said, not just what is the church, but what does it mean then for you to be the church? What should mark the members of a church? You can attend, but what does it mean to really be in the church? And last week, Sibby kicked that off by saying, well, you've got to believe the gospel. That, that in order to be a member of a church, any church, particularly even this church, you've got to believe the gospel, the good news. That God saw us in our sin, in our dead estate, sent His Son Jesus for our sake. He lived the life we should have lived, died the death for our sake. And all of us who have repented of our sins and believe in Him have a new life, are new creations, and, and have eternal life with Him. Now, you can attend church forever, but to be in the church, to be a member of the church, you've got to believe the gospel. This week, we want to add another layer to that and say another mark of those who are the church, members in the church, is that it's not just going to suffice to believe the gospel, but to allow the gospel to grow you and mature you. That you don't just come to faith, but you grow in faith. 
And James is convinced that there is no such thing as Christianity that does not grow, that does not mature. The scriptures will call it things like progressive sanctification. Sanctification is that biblical word saying that day by day, I am being changed. That when I came to faith in Jesus, I brought with me a baggage of my old life, of my sinful ways, and my old thoughts, and my old lifestyle, and Jesus gave me a new bag filled with his righteousness, with a different way of life. And I've traded these bags, and now I am progressively putting on this new bag, this new way of life. And James is convinced that has to happen if you are truly a Christian. And if it's not happening, then you have to examine your heart as to whether you are truly a believer. And James is also convinced that the scriptures play a huge role in all of that. That if you're going to mature and if you're going to grow, then you need the scriptures. And so one of the questions we're going to ask is, how do the scriptures play into all of this? How is a believer to relate to God's Word? What does God's Word do in this whole mix? If you're going to be a member of a church, if you're going to be a part of the church, you have to be a believer. If you're going to be a believer, you have to grow. And James is going to say, if you're going to grow, the Scriptures and how you relate to God's Word is going to play a huge part in that whole conversation. So that's why we're in James 1. Let me read for you again verses 18 to 25. Hear these words again. Of his own will, he, that's God, brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls." But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Let's pray that the Lord would add his blessing to this word together. Our God, we pause to remember that we need you to come by your spirit in this hour to point us to Jesus and his truth. In ourselves, we will not receive your word with meekness, but we will be defensive and arrogant and our sin will disrupt any reception of it. But we pray that you would come by your Holy Spirit even now, that your word would be received by all of us with meekness, and that it would be able to save our souls, and that we would not just hear it, but do what it says, and bring the men and women gathered here to faith and to maturity. For this is your will, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're starting in verse 18. In verse 18, James is going to begin this section by first talking about the power of God's Word. This is what he'll say. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. James is going to say, God brought us forth by the word of truth. In the preceding verses, in the passage right before, in verses 14 and 15, James is going to talk about a very different kind of birth. He's going to use this sort of pregnancy metaphor and imagery, sort of give you this reproductive cycle of sin. 
And so in, in 14 and 15, he's going to give you this very dark, sinister, evil birth. Listen to what he says. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. So here's what's happening. In James 1, the people are, are sort of struggling with their sins and temptations. And so they're looking to God and they're saying, God, why do you keep tempting me? Because I keep falling into sin. And James wants to correct them right away and say, no, no, God tempts no one, for God is not tempted by evil. And so he begins to unpack for them why they sin. He begins to tell them, here's the pregnancy that happens in your heart. Some evil desire comes into the womb of your heart and is implanted there, and then it's conceived and gives birth to sin, and that sin grows up and brings forth death. He'll actually use the word brought forth. It brings forth death. Right, So he's got this, this image of this desire coming, planting itself in the womb of your heart, being conceived, d- delivered, born as sin, and grows up into death. And you, if you're here and you're a Christian or not, maybe you know that to be true in your own life, that you find that some desire finds its way into your mind, into your heart, and it will not let go. There is no abortion at that point. It will not stop till it's fully conceived into sin. And it has you doing and saying and thinking things until it has its way with you. And that action will inevitably, the scriptures say, lead to death. This is why Paul in Romans will say, For the wages of sin is death. That your sinful desires will birth sin, which will grow up and lead you and bring forth death. Yet unlike this dark sinister, unplanned pregnancy, verse 18 speaks of what God is going to do. That God is deliberately bringing forth, not death, but life. Do you see that? He contrasts the two to say, in ourselves, what our desires did was give birth to sin, which would lead and bring forth death. But God, verse 18, of his own will, brought us forth to life. A deliberate, beautiful, glorious new birth and life. And one of the questions we want to ask is, how did that happen? How did he bring us forth to life? How did he change us from these sinful desires being born to lead us to death to now bringing forth life from us? And James will say, by the word of truth. Do you see that? Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. How is it that you are born to a new life, given a new birth? You are brought forth to life? It's by the word of truth. So what the scriptures are saying is that the the Bible, the truth of the gospel, the truth of this book is the means, it's the agent that God uses to bring you to new life. That on your own, your sinful desires was leading you to death, but God brought you to life and did so by the word of truth by the truth of this book. If you piece that with what Sibby said last week, Ephesians 2 talked about how we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We had no hope, nothing in us Godward. But, verse 4, God made us alive with Christ. And, And we want to ask, how did he make us alive with Christ? And James will add, by the word of truth. That God sent the truth of his word into your dead heart and brought it forth to life. And that's how all of you came to faith. If any of you are a Christian, God's word was the agent that brought you to faith. 
The Spirit brought God's Word upon your heart, whether it was through a conversation you had with someone and they were telling you the the truth of the Gospel, or a sermon that you heard, or a season where you were surrounded by people who were living the truth of the Gospel to you, or a song that you heard that was singing out the truth of God's Word. Whatever it was, God's Word and its truth was laid on your heart by the Spirit and brought you forth to life. And so James is saying this, this Word is not just print on a page. This is the means by which you were brought to life. This is the means by which you were born again. This is the means, the agent that God saw fit to use to bring you to new life. But that's not all James is going to say about the Word. That's not all the Word does. I mean, that itself is immense. It's brought you to life from death. But James is going to say more. But before he does, he's going to sort of take a little bit of a roundabout to get where he wants to go. He's going to tell you more about the Word, but but he doesn't just take a straight arrow. He's got sort of a roundabout to get there. If you read through James 1 and even his letter, you're going to find that it's a little bit discombobulated. You're sort of here and there, and you're sort of dizzy by the time you read through James' letter because he's got a flow of thought, and he's got some unity, but it's a very loose unity. If you've read in the Old Testament the book of Proverbs, it can feel that way, right? Proverbs has all these great sayings, but you're not really sure how one verse connects to the next. It just seems sort of random, and James can be that same way. He's got wisdom to share with all these new believers, but but he sort of goes here and he sort of goes there. It's, it's like a parent that's about to leave for work in the morning. So if dad's about to leave in the morning, he's got some final instructions to say to his son. And so he'll pull Johnny to the door right before he's about to go and say, listen, make sure that you eat your vegetables today, obey your mom, clean your room, feed the dog, and just as he's about to walk out, say, oh, and don't flush your sister's head in the toilet again, right? And you, you don't know how all of those connect, but they're all wisdom, they're all necessary, and Johnny's got to do them all, right? And so James is that same sort of way. In chapter 1, he's going to start with, hey, trials will bring about Christian maturity. It'll bring about that growth that we're looking for. It's a good thing. And then he'll sort of segue into this conversation about the rich and the poor. And then he'll come back and say, but, but temptations, remember, those don't come from God. God is good. And then he'll say, and remember, God in his goodness brought you forth by the word of truth. And then we'll get to verse 19. He'll say, know this, my beloved brothers, let every one of you be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. He's going to keep talking about God's word, but before he does, he takes this segue and says, listen, all of you should know that you are to be quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Because remember, in James's understanding of faith, what you believe in here and know up here will inevitably affect what happens out here, even to mundane things like the way that you speak. And so in the next coming chapters, he's going to talk about the tongue because the gospel, James believes, impacts everything. There's no arena that the gospel doesn't inform and touch. And so he's going to say, listen, if this gospel is true, then part of maturity is going to be that it affects even what you say, how quick you say it, and how you listen, that what Christ did on the cross impacts even the way that you hear and what you say. The gospel touches everything. And so he's calling his people to be a people that are slow to speak and quick to listen and slow to get angry. 
He's saying when you relate to one another, hear their words and be slow on your own and be slow to speak. We need to hear that. But maybe it's not so random and discombobulated after all. Because I think maybe what James is getting at is this is how you're to relate to one another's words and to God's words. That you're to hear quickly one another's words and be slow to speak, but also you're to be quick to hear God's word and slow to speak and slow to anger. In this context, in verse 19, I think what he's getting at is this is how you're to be in interpersonal relationships and in your personal relationship with God. You, you slow down on how quick you are to speak and how quick you are to assert things and just hear. Hear God's word. Be quick to hear, slow to speak. And so he'll continue in verse 21. He's going to, again, go back to how we're to relate to God's word. He'll say, Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. All right, James is pursuing again Christian maturity. If you're believed, you're going to grow. And in order to do that, he's going to say, as you're about to come to God's word, put away all the filthiness and the rampant wickedness. He uses some really strong words. He says these words that are to communicate to us the, the sordid nature we find ourselves in, the, the extreme of our human predicament, that we are basically clothed in filth. And what he's going to say is, you put away all that filthiness and all the rampant wickedness. James is going to see our sin sort of like earwax that's going to block you from hearing God's word. And so you've got to deal with that so that you can hear it well. So receive God's word. He's going to call you to that, but first put away all the filthiness because that stuff is going to keep you from hearing God's word. And you know that. You know in those seasons of your life when you are dedicated to sin, God's word sort of pings right off your ears. It just bounces off. Because you, you've got so much junk in the way and, and James is saying clear that out so that you can receive with meekness the implanted word of God. I remember reading in, I think it was Shainu's Bible, and the very first page was just this sentence that said, this book will keep you from sin and sin will keep you from this book. Right? This book will keep you from sin and sin will keep you from this book. And so I think James is saying put away all the filthiness and the rampant wickedness that you might, and then he goes on to say, receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So put this stuff away. I mean, this is even why just a few minutes ago in the beginning of our service, we have a time of confession. You should make use of that time. Don't let your minds wander and be distracted. That's intentional so that you can come to every week when God's word is about to be preached and say, God, would you please put away from my heart all the filthiness and the rampant wickedness that would keep me from hearing and receiving your word? Would you forgive the things that I bring into this service? And would you cleanse me even now so that I might sit under your word and receive it well? Right? It's useful for you. And James will say, receive with meekness the implanted word. That word receive. So he's going to tell us again, how are believers to relate to God's word? How are we to relate to the Bible. Well, he's going to say receive. And that word receive is sort of like the word you would use when you're going to receive a will, right? 
Say next week, I said to you, before we preach the sermon, I got to let you know that a very wealthy woman in Philadelphia passed away. She loved Seven Mile Road and the work we were doing here. She knew each of you, even though you didn't know her, and she has left her estate to the individuals of this church. Tell me how you'd do it listening to what I was about to say next. There would be no dozing. There would be no zoning in and out. You would be hanging on every word waiting for your name to be called and waiting to hear of what is about to follow and how it's about to alter and enrich your life forever. And James says that's the posture that you ought to bring as you come to God's word. You are ready to receive it as though this thing were about to enrich your life and could change it forever. You receive God's word. This is not a, you know, I'll I'll, I'll read the Bible. This is, I receive, I I hang on these words as though it's about to enrich me forever, as though it has the potential to change my life forever. And he says, receive with meekness. That means you're coming with humility. That means you're coming to God's word and you're saying, God, my heart is hard. My mind is distracted. And would you please help me to receive your word? I submit myself under your authority and I'm asking you, open my heart and point me to Christ and help me to receive this word. How do you approach God's word? That's a good question for your soul. Do you receive it with meekness? Is there a humility? Do you sit in authority over this book, judging and weighing its merits, or do you let it sit in authority over you that it might judge and weigh your merit? Do you dig deep in this book and at the same time allow it to dig deep into you? Do you cut it apart or do you also let it cut you apart? Seeking to know what's in here but allowing the book to know what's in here and show you what's in here. Do you bend your experiences and lifestyle to the authority of this book or do you bend this book to fit your lifestyle and your experiences? And God is saying, when you come to this book, you receive it and you do so with meekness. Ready to receive, as though you were hanging on every word. But James says a very curious thing in this phrase. He says, receive with meekness the implanted word. The implanted word. So he's already said that God's word is the agent that brought you forth to life. And now he's saying, receive the word that is implanted in you. So if I could summarize it, he'd be saying, receive the word that you've already received. And that's curious. What does he mean to say? Receive the word that you've already received. Receive the word that's already implanted in you. What James is saying is you are to continually receive the word that you have already received. You're to continually receive the word you've already received. That when God brought you forth to life, he planted his word in you, and you're to keep receiving that word. One pastor said it like this. It'd be like the difference between you receiving your lungs and receiving oxygen. Lungs, I can't keep receiving them. They were implanted into me. I don't think about them. They work. But that's not the way you see oxygen. Oxygen is implanted in me, but I continuously receive it, right? No one goes, look at how oxygen is working in me. I have no need for it anymore. That would be death, right? But you continually receive 
the oxygen that keeps you alive. Think of that. It's what made you alive and what keeps you alive. It's what brought you to life and what continues you in life. And so God's word is in your heart. It's already sprung up and it's to be constantly received over and over again to sustain my soul like oxygen sustains my lungs. I live by this word. I literally hang on it so that my soul is hanging, breathing by receiving this word. So James is going to say, listen, this word has brought you forth to life. And what you are to do is rid yourself of all the filth, the moral filth, and all the wickedness, and you're to receive with meekness the implanted word. And he's got one last thing to say. Look at verses 22 to 25. But then he adds, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. James is going to say we don't just receive God's word. And it's not just that it's brought us forth to life, but we are to do what it says. You don't just receive it. You do what it says. In fact, verse 22 will literally be, be word doers. That's the phrase. Be word doers. Because the danger is we hear, but we do not do. Think about this with me for a second. I've been, I've been just trying to think about this. This danger exists in American Christianity, perhaps more than any other, that we are hearers without being doers. Think of the access you have to biblical information. You have greater access than perhaps any people in the history of the planet and perhaps in all the entire world. You have more access to biblical truth, biblical information than perhaps any people have ever had. You can type in your favorite preacher's names and get every sermon he's ever preached. You have sermons on CD and sermons on the web and podcasts and vodcasts and blogs and articles and books and books on CD and books on tape and you have books, e-books that you can download and you've got seminars and classes and seminaries and you've got internet classes and now you have iTunes U where you can literally listen to any class and receive free classes. You have unbelievable access to biblical information. So let me ask you, is our generation then the most sanctified generation that has ever lived? If it was that we needed information, if we needed biblical knowledge, if that's what we were lacking, tell me, are we the holiest, most righteous, most godly people to ever have walked the face of the earth? I want to call it bobblehead Christianity, right? You've seen a bobblehead? The thing has a giant head. So much so that if it was a real person, it couldn't walk because it's disproportionate to the rest of the body. The head is enormous, and that's sort of what Christianity is like for many of us. We just want to grow with more and more knowledge, but none of it ever works its way out to our hands and to our feet. We're disproportionately huge because we just want to get more knowledge. If you go to church, you're all guilty of this kind of thinking, or you can be. Right? We love the people who go in depth in God's Word. What does that mean? That's just code for us for more information. 
I just want more knowledge. Or let me ask you a, a real question. What is your goal in studying the Scriptures? Is it knowledge or is it obedience? This one has cut me because I think about this. My job is to know the Scriptures and communicate them. What is my primary heart in coming to this book? Is it to know and know more than, than I could possibly know or, or, or more than others? Or is my heart to come to this book so that I could obey? We are much more interested in knowledge than we are in obedience. And James will say, if you are a hearer but not a doer, that's of no use. If all we needed was information, we would be the most sanctified people on the planet. But why is it that there are saints all around the world ready to die for Jesus, and I am too scared to talk to the guy at Starbucks about him? It's not that I have less information. I have more than many of the saints who are giving their lives for him because they don't just hear the word. They do what it says. Right? In every other arena of life, this makes perfect sense. You know that you're not blessed in the hearing, but in the doing. If you have a sickness and you need medicine, how wise would you be if you talked to physicians and understood your, your problem? You went on WebMD and you diagnosed and learned the whole thing. You got the prescription, studied it, and memorized it. But until you do what? Until you swallow that pill, you will never be well. And yet we, we have this tendency to say what we need is more Bible studies and more classes and more places where we can get more truth. And I'm not against truth. But if you are not doing what it says, James would say there's a shortcut here. There's a, there's a problem here. In fact, James has his own illustration. He says the man who does this is like a man who looks at himself in the mirror and then immediately turns away and forgets what he saw. It's, it's like he's suddenly struck with amnesia the second he turns away and completely forgets what he saw. Imagine you looked at a mirror and you've got this big piece of spinach stuck in your teeth. And you turn away and you forget to grab the toothpick. James would say, then what's the point of looking if you were not going to make the necessary adjustments when you turned away? What's the point of hearing this word if you will not do what it says? Why look at a mirror? if you're not going to make any adjustments based on what you see. James is going to say, in fact, what you're doing is you're deceiving yourself. That week after week you're hearing God's word, and as you hear it, you keep deceiving yourself because you grow in knowledge, but do not grow in obedience. And James says, do not be hearers of the word only, but do what it says. And he contrasts this quick glance in the mirror that forgets what it sees with verse 25. He says, But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but the doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. What he's doing is he's contrasting the guy who looks at the mirror and forgets and says, But there's another kind of guy. The guy who looks and keeps looking. He says, perseveres, the one who keeps looking at God's word and doesn't forget what he's seen, but does what it says. I'd ask you, what marks your look at the scriptures? This cuts my own heart. Is it a quick glance to check off a box, or are you persevering in a steadfast, continual look at this book, so that by it you might see who God is and see who you are and make the necessary adjustments? And hear again day after day and continually receive the gospel through this book. Right? How are you looking at this book? 
Is it this persevering look? Imagine, imagine this. The only difference between a mirror and God's word is a mirror just reports information. It just tells you back what it sees. But the one who, James is going to say, the one who looks at God's word and perseveres, it has the ability to transform. Imagine you had a mirror that not just showed you what you look like, but improved what you look like. Ladies, tell me that wouldn't sell at Macy's, right? You look at this mirror and it not just shows you what it looks like, but it improves what it sees. And, and God's word does that. So that as you stare steadfastly, persevering at this book, it is able to show you the image of God and to work on your heart to conform you to that image so that you look less and less like you and more and more like Him. This is not read the Bible because that's what Christians do. This is read the Bible for a very great reason, and we'll end with that. Why is all this important? Why do we say all this? Look again for a second at verse 21. James says, Receive with meekness the implanted word, which is what? Which is able to save your souls. The importance of all that we're saying, why we're saying all that we're saying, is because James is convinced this book is able to save your souls. Your souls are at stake when he's talking about receiving this word. Your soul. But again, here's the curious thing. Who is James talking to? He's talking to Christians. Remember that. He said, the word is what brought you forth. He's talking to Christians and then saying to Christians who have been saved, receive the word that you might be able to be saved. Why does he do that? He's talking to people who have been saved and saying, receive with meekness the word which is implanted in you, which is able to save your souls. And you want to ask James, wait, wait, time out. You're talking to Christians. Why would you say, receive the word that they might be able to be saved? They've already been saved. Do you see the, the, the question? James, why are you insisting that we receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save when we've, I thought we were already saved? I came on this truth a few years ago that has forever changed how I approach preaching and how we approach God's word. And that is that Years ago, I would pray that when I would preach, God, would you save sinners through the preached word, and would you edify the saints? That's just a, a biblical way of saying, would you help people who don't know Jesus come to know Jesus, and would you let the people who know Jesus really grow in their faith? And then I shifted my prayer to now praying, God, would you save sinners and save saints? It's not that we're not concerned with edification. We are. We want Christians to grow and mature. But James is saying that the salvation of those who have been saved is completed by the Word. Here's what I mean. Maybe we've said this before. But when we talk about salvation in the Bible, we're talking about the idea that we were saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. Right? When we were justified, when we came to faith in Christ, we were saved. But sanctification is the, the process by which we are being saved so that one day in glorification we will be saved. Does that make sense? God has started this process. He will never shortcut it. Everyone will see its way through whom he has started it in. But he saved us. We're being saved. We will be saved. That God's word comes to us and brings us forth to life in justification. God's word continues to be received by us 
in sanctification so that one day we will be saved at final judgment in glorification. And what James is saying is that the Word is the means by which God continually sanctifies and saves. Right? Your, your soul is going to persevere to the end by God's Word. You don't just read this so that you can become better. You read this because this is the means by which God preserves you to the end. So that the word that first came into your heart and brought you forth to life is the implanted word which as you receive it continues to save you so that you might be saved. Because God saves his people and perseveres them to the end through his word. This book is of huge importance because it is able to save your souls. So here's my question for you. As you've sat here patiently hearing God's word, where are you at with all of this? Right? Have you come to be brought forth to life through God's word? Or is the pregnancy that's happening in the womb of your heart still that evil desires are producing and giving birth to sin that is leading you to death? Or have you allowed God to come into that whole thing and stop that and give you a radically new birth, a birth that comes by His Word to new life in Him? And not just have you believed, but are you continuing to receive with meekness the implanted Word which is able to save your souls? If you know Jesus, if you know the Lord, how are you doing in relating to His Word? Because James is going to say, if you're a hearer and not a doer, there's a huge problem here. But are you receiving it, hanging on every word as though it could enrich your life and change it forever? And are you doing it with meekness, saying, Lord, would you please open my heart to this word and open me to this word? And are you receiving continually this implanted word like oxygen for your soul, that you live by this, recognizing that this is the means by which God is able to save? And are you not just hearing the word, but doing what it says, so that in all your doings, you might be blessed. Let's pray.